This is Witness Radio with Ryan Muniak, where you learn biblical evangelism from real-life encounters. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Our call-in line is 513-900-8070, and the website is witnesstalkradio.org. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Today's broadcast is brought to you by Answers in Genesis, an apologetics ministry that's dedicated to helping Christians defend their faith and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Visit witnesstalkradio.org slash AIG to see their latest resources. Today, I am on location at Answers in Genesis, and I've got my friend Leah here with me because we're going to interview someone really smart. I mean, so smart, he's got a book, at least one. He's got a couple of books, and I asked Leah to come in and, and... help me because, well, I'm not that smart. But she is, and she's read the book, and she knows all about the topic at hand, which is astronomy, which I keep confusing with astrology. We'll get into that later. But our guest for today is Danny Faulkner. He's earned graduate degrees in physics and astronomy. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of South Carolina, Lancaster. He taught there for over 26 years. Dr. Faulkner is a member of the Creation Research Society, and he also serves as editor of the Creation Research Society Quarterly. He's currently on staff here as astronomer at Answers in Genesis. Dr. Faulkner, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Wonderful blessing to have you here. And one of the reasons that we have you here today is because you have this new book out called The Created Cosmos. And like I said a minute ago, my friend Leah, she's read the book, and she loves looking at stars. I myself, I'm always told to get my head out of the clouds, so (laughs) I I figured I would let her do the heavy lifting. Uh, Before we get into more information about your book, though, why don't you tell us how were you saved? I was born into a Christian family. In fact, when I was very young, my my uh, parents relocated to go to Bible school for a few years so that uh, my dad could prepare for the ministry. Uh, about the time I started school, first grade, I uh, my, my father started a, a small independent Baptist church. And uh, at the end of that first year, at the end of my first grade, we had a vacation Bible school. I responded to the gospel that week at age six. I understood for the first time really what, what my need was for salvation. And my, in fact, I was a sinner. And so I was born again at age six. How did that progress into your Christian walk and eventually getting into astronomy? Oh boy, it gets weaved together. You know, as a, when you're age six, you don't uh, have a big long list of sins, a life of sin you've been living. But, um, and also being a relatively small town, uh, people knew I was a PK, a preacher's kid. So I didn't really have to worry about living a Christian testimony because, uh, temptations didn't come my way, many of them, because people avoided bringing temptation my way. But, um, I was also very interested in astronomy at a very young age. I can remember looking up the sky at night and being fascinated with the stars as early as age four, depending on where we lived at the time. I remember that taking place. So uh, I've always was just fascinated with that, but I never gave any thought to what I'd do with my life until I was in high school. My sophomore year of high school really uh, uh, really had a lot of things come together for me. In retrospect, it was a very key time in my life. I rededicated my life to Lord's service at that point. I also discovered that you could actually make a living uh, doing astronomy. I uh, never thought about that before. I also uh, realized I had the ability to do that. 
And I also began to realize that that was my life's calling. That's what the Lord wanted me to do. So from that sophomore year of high school, at about age 15, I, I, I put myself on the track that I am today, uh, going to school for a very long time, getting those degrees, and then getting into the field. I had no idea where I was going to work, what I was going to do, but I uh, eventually, of course, went to the university where I taught for many years and then finally here at Answers in Genesis, pursuing full-time creation astronomy. So were you in full-time ministry before coming to Answers? in Genesis? Well, yes and no. I mean, I was employed by the university. They were in my keep that way. But on the other hand, uh, I was writing at that point, speaking, uh, doing a lot of work creation. So I I would consider myself a full-time creation scientist all that time. It's just I was not doing this work full-time. Since I've been at Answers in Genesis four years almost, my level of productivity has gone up tremendously. I understand. I, I look forward to the day when my level of productivity can go up. So, Leah, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the book from a person who's read the book as opposed to Danny just telling us about the book that he's written. Sure. Well, I really enjoyed reading the book. It was like the first book about astronomy that I read that really went into detail about what the scripture says about astronomy and the sun, the moon, and the stars. So my first question was, what does Genesis 1 teach us about how God created the universe? Like, what is the meaning of Genesis 1 verse 1, for example? It's been very common in creation circles to believe that Genesis 1 1 speaks of the creation and space of the universe. And I held that position for many years. But in my book, I, I come out with uh, some change in attitude about that I've had in the last couple of years by study and, and consideration. I now believe that Genesis 1 1 is, is, serves as a, some will call it introductory encapsulation or a Summary, if you will, uh, heaven and earth is a is a mirrorism referring to all of existence, and we even use that today. You know, we, heaven and earth means everything around us, everything you can think of. So I think uh, more more than anything, the statement there is the. Uh, it's a it's a statement that God created everything, and then he goes into detail after that. Uh, earth coming first uh, in verse two picks up there. We don't find. Uh, the stars and astronomical bodies made until day four. But there is this thing made in day two, verses six through eight of Genesis one. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word is rachia, and I like that term. Uh, the King James uh, termed it, uh, translated as firmament, which I think is a, is a poor translation of some, some say sky or expanse. But I've come to believe that, that the rachia of day two is actually the space of the universe. So uh, there really wasn't much on the first day. It was the earth and not much anything else. And then from that, uh, the rest of the universe was, was birthed, as it were, on the second day. Right. Yeah, I had always... Um, thought of Genesis 1 as meaning that God created the universe. And so I learned a whole lot from reading that first section in your book. And also, what did God do on day two? Like, what does the waters being separated, separating the ferment? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky concept, and there have been different opinions over the years. But uh, I, I, as, as I said, there are many arguments that, that you can bring forth to show that I think that uh, that firmament or rachia is uh, the space of the universe. And apparently there was a lot of water on the earth, around the earth at the time of the initial creation, uh, day one. And then God saw fit to, to spread this out, this rakia, something that is spread out. It's, it's, it, I, what I imagine there is this, 
the sphere shooting outward from the earth at a very rapid speed. And if this is correct, you have waters below, which is, I think pretty clearly is water is found on the surface of the earth. It would suggest that the uh, universe is surrounded by a, a shell or wall of water out there at a great distance. And to me, that was mind-blowing when I began to comprehend that a couple of years before. It was a um, my attitude about the universe has changed a lot. I'm beginning to think that uh, we have a, a finite universe. It also has an edge, which is a real anathema to most of astronomer, astronomers and cosmologists. It certainly was repelled me at first. But if you take the, this account of, of Genesis 1 very seriously, as I've tried to do, uh, you, you're inescapably left with this conclusion that you've got the Earth near the center of the universe. You've got uh, an edge to the universe. At the edge of the universe or just beyond it is a shell of water. What is beyond? I have no idea. I've also uh, been thinking that that perhaps this offers us a mechanism or a source for what people call the cosmic microwave background, or CMB for short. That was discovered uh, 50 years ago. It was a supposed big proof of the Big Bang uh, coming from a time in the early epoch of the universe. But you know what? If, if the universe is surrounded by a shell of water, uh, then it's, that material has got to radiate. And if it radiates, it's going to give off radiation. And we're going to pick that up. We're going to see that. So I'm developing this idea, certainly just a beginning now, but of flushing it in, that that CMB is actually uh, a remnant of creation, as it were, but very different from how most people mean it. I, I, I got to jump in here just for a moment. Leah, are you understanding the words that are coming out of his mouth? Yes. Okay. I, I'm not. So I'm really glad that you decided <laughs> to show up today. Uh, what about... In in the book, it, does it give description of, of all these fancy words and terms that he's using? Yes, it does. Okay, good. So people who are a, a little smarter than me can actually pick up this book and, and learn something, whereas to me, it's like reading Spanish. <laughs> yeah, I, I try not to be real technical in the book. I think some of the more technical aspects of the book really uh, has to do with the uh, Hebrew that's uh, in, there, in there, the Greek too, but the Hebrew more than anything. I really stay away from the science because, see, this book is not about astronomy per se. It's about what the Bible says about astronomy. I'm, by the way, working on a a sequel or companion to the book where I do talk about what astronomy and how it relates to creation. It's a book that hasn't been written in a very long while either, but it's going to be a companion to this one. Because I left a lot of things out because I just wanted this book to be about biblical astronomy. And um, so if uh, readers should not be turned off thinking it's to be really technical. I do define these terms, as I said. And and uh, the Hebrew, I had a lot of help from Lee Anderson, who are on the staff here at AIG. He has uh, expertise in Hebrew. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I think he is. And he gave me a tremendous amount of help on that part. But that's the most technical part of the book, I believe, the Hebrew. What is the purpose of the sun, moon, and stars according to the Bible? Oh, we got several there. I think uh, Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. And I think that's just it's like a big billboard to me advertising there is a creator echoed, of course, in Romans uh, uh, 1, 19 and 20, that people are without excuse because the, the, the world around us proclaims there is a creator. Uh, but more specifically, in, in uh, day two account, we're given several purposes. They're to provide light upon the earth. People think just in terms of the sun doing that, but the moon does too, and even the stars. I've been in some very dark locations at observatories when there's no moon, and if there aren't many trees around, I can actually walk around and recognize people just by starlight. Most people are blown away with that concept, but they never get in a truly dark sight and let their eyes get dark adapted. But also they're too 
uh, rule over the day and over the night. The, the sun is to rule over the day. I think the moon and the stars rule over the night. They're also to be for, uh, it says, for signs and for seasons and for days and for, for years. I think the days and the years is talking about uh, calendric purposes. The year is defined astronomically by our orbital period around the sun. The day is defined astronomically by our rotation period, primarily with respect to the sun. And then the month in between those two natural units of time are, uh, is defined in terms of, of the moon's orbit around the earth every month. As far as signs, there will be apocalyptic signs in the heavens, we're told by various passages, including the New Testament, the words of Jesus himself. There's a sign with the star that the Magi um, were drawn to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem to, to, to see the, the newborn king. And for seasons, the, we tend to think today of that as being in terms of the climatic seasons, autumn, winter, spring, summer. But in reality, the, the Hebrew word there refers to the um, seasons or times of the festivals, the Passover, Pentecost, and so forth. And they used a, a very a different calendar we have. It's a, a lunar solar. We just have a solar calendar today. But that lunar solar calendar depends upon observing the moon and keeping track of time. And so he was even then, at the very beginning, indicating his calendar that he wanted the uh, the Hebrews to use to observe these things. So uh, many different purposes you find explicitly stated in Scripture. One of the purposes you mentioned was the Christmas star. What do you think the Christmas star was? Oh, there have been whole books written on that of late in the last 10 or 12 years, several books written on it. I'm actually, in my spare time, working on another my own version of that as well. People want to look for things that we can identify astronomically, alignments of planets, a nova, a comet. All, those are all three been suggested in the last 10 or 20 years. But, you know, when I look at Matthew's account there in chapter 2, only over 10 verses, by the way, very little information given but I've not found any astronomical body that seems to fit. I'm very concerned when people try to make their own pet model uh, fit here. And so um, I, a long time ago, decided it was probably nothing uh, we know about. And by the way, I'm not alone. Many other people have uh, decided the same thing. Uh, and you've got to realize that any point-like source in the sky, the illuminated source, is going to be called a star. You know, the planets were stars. Today we say, well, they're not, but they, planet means wandering star. Uh, comet is a, is a hairy star. It's, it's viewed as a star as well. Uh, asteroids, those are star-like objects. Meteors, shooting stars, falling stars, you know, they, they look like stars. They're not. We redefine what, what a star is today, and we've made it very specific, and we should not take our modern definitions and impl- impose that back on ancient times and on the, on the text of Scripture. So any point-like source, including, say, airplanes today at night flying around with the lights on, those look like stars. Satellites, do you see those by reflected sunlight? They look like stars moving across the sky over several minutes. If you if God would have made a special light, say a few hundred or a few thousand feet up, it would have been geographically uh, localized that only a few people, such as a Magi, would have seen it, which explains why nobody in Jerusalem seemed to know anything about this star. And also it could follow this peculiar motion that it had. You know, it says that it went before them as they left uh, Jerusalem and headed down to Bethlehem, and then it uh, stood over the place where the, where the child was. And again, no astronomical body can do that unless you really lean on the scriptures to uh, to get your meaning you want. So I'm I'm convinced it was a special light designed by God. Some people suggest it may be a manifestation of God himself, like Shekinah glory or something, but I don't care. I think it really was a, a miraculous sort of source. So wait a minute. You're saying that God caused a miracle to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. 
Well, you know, today we just got this idea of science being uh, just about uh, the way the natural world works all the time, and it excludes any intervention or, or even creation by a, by a creator. And I think that's that's an improper assumption. I think uh, as a scientist, uh, we need to at least be aware of the possibility that miracles can happen, even if you don't believe in miracles, even if you're an atheist. You have to understand that sometimes, logically, you would have to allow that possibility. If you did not allow that possibility, then you are making a metaphysical assumption. There is no miracle. There are no miracles. There is no creator. There is no God. And that is an assumption that you're making. It's not a conclusion, though many scientists seem to think that. So as a scientist, I don't have a problem. There's no conflict here. I know that God normally has ordained things that work a certain way, and that's what science is all about. But he, as creator, he does have the uh, right and the authority to to intervene from time to time, which he has. And another thing you'd mentioned before was biblical prophecy, like signs of the end times. What do you think the Bible says about how what astronomy will have to do with that in the end times? You know, that was probably the most difficult <laughs> chapter to write in the book because I wanted to be very careful. I kind of outlined different eschatological positions, and it was tough to do that. I want people to come away from the book not knowing what I what I believe about these things. And um, that's not too hard to do, I guess, in some respects, because I don't know what I believe in many many of these things. But we do find apocalyptic language. We find uh, the, the sun being dark and the moon being dark and the stars being dark and are falling from the sky. It talks about the moon being as blood and so forth. And this is found in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, again and again and again. When you look at the language surrounding them, you have these things. You have some really perplexing and really troubling things apparent in the sky. Some people want to explain these naturalistically, just like they wanted to explain the Christmas star naturalistically. They want to say, well, the moon being turned to blood, that's a lunar eclipse. The moon, the sun being darkened, that's a solar eclipse. Well, these things happen, not commonly, but every year or two they happen, and they've been happening throughout time. I think it really sets the bar pretty low on interpreting the, these these events to happen. Uh, I do believe these events are real. I believe they've not happened yet. I think when they do happen, they will be perplexing and troubling, as I already said. And the reason why I think they will be is because they will defy explanation. There will be things that will be very, if you know, well, that's just caused by dust or that's caused by an eclipse, no big deal. But if you really don't have an explanation and you're and you're really casting about for whatever you can, that will be terrifying to a lot of people. It ought to be. Now, some people hardness their hearts; they'll 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 try to explain it away. But I think these things are going to be again miraculous interventions at some point. So now, one thing you brought up was the moon turning to blood or moon, the moon looking like blood, and that's been really big lately. Another person who shall not be named, recently came out with a book about blood moons. Uh, there's actually two different books that came out. Oh, there, there's multiple <laughs> ones. No. Both heretical, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far, perhaps. But but you know what? They, again, it lowers the bar. They were trying to to argue that there was a, there was a series of four lunar eclipses on the Pentecost on on Passover and Sukkot, two very high holy days, uh, in, in the, among the Jews, and uh, these eclipses, lunar four lunar eclipses, uh, six months apart, roughly over a two year year and a half interval, in 2014 and 2015. 
And this is supposed to be a really rare phenomenon, supposedly. And it, every time it happens, something really big happens with Israel. And the implication coming very strongly from both of these books and other people writing and t- talking about it was this was going to uh, presage the Lord's return. You know, they say, well, the, the moon being turned to blood, that means the, the moon turns red. And that's what the most common color of a, of a, of a lunar eclipse is. But um, <clears throat> it's been more than a year since this tetrad of four lunar eclipses happened. And we're still here. <laughs> and nothing really major happened in the Middle East, even though someone were backing up and saying, well, maybe just a big war or something will happen. Nothing happened. Uh, I've, I've been through my adult lifetime, I counted recently, uh, nine ends of the world that I've gone through. <laughs> so I don't think much of people keep setting dates and, and even just implying dates on these things. Furthermore, I think the uh, argument that these the moon turning to blood means it's going to turn red is that's true at all because – I've seen more than a dozen uh, total lunar eclipses in my life. None of them would I describe as being blood-like. I'd say uh, orange, like uh, orange, the fruit, pumpkin, copper, peach, coal. I've seen different shades from black to red, orange, I should say. I've never seen blood red. I never have. And uh, copper is kind of the more common color that I see. It's a peculiar little color there. I've, I'm convinced the three passages we find, uh, the moon turning to blood is found in, uh, uh, Joel 2, Acts 2, quoting Joel 2, and then again, I think in Revelation 6 or 7. And I'm convinced it's not talking about the moon being made red at all. I think it's talking about the moon being darkened. Elsewhere we read about the, the moon being sackcloth or being darkened, withdrawing its light. Uh, these people, and certainly in Acts 2 and in Joel 2, they were very familiar with the sacrificial system. They had been to Jerusalem. They'd seen the sacrifices, participated in the sacrifices. They didn't clean the altar up between uh, between sacrifices. They left it like that. And what does blood look like after it's dried? It gets very dark brown, almost black in color. And so when I think it says moon being turned to blood, it's not talking about about the moon turning red, like like recently spilled blood, it's talking about it being black like blood that stains things. And that's consistent then with the moon being darkened. So I think this idea that it's a, it's a lunar eclipse is just really casting about and, and stopping way too soon and, and what, what the text actually probably means. You're listening to Witness Radio. Imagine Jesus walking onto your local college campus. What would he say? Would he be like Matthew chapter 9, seeing the people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? And say, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. At Christian Collegiate Network, we are sending workers into the harvest. We are training students how to proclaim the glorious gospel. If you want to support our ministry at Christian Collegiate Network by becoming a campus leader or financially, go to changeyourcampus.com. The children of Lima, Peru face many difficulties, hunger, neglect, abuse, and most importantly, a lack of the gospel. Heart of Christ Ministry seeks to bring the gospel and to fulfill the other needs of the children. Please consider partnering with us. You can sponsor a child for just $25 a month, and there are many other ways to help. Please visit hofcm.org. There are things that cause the heart to wonder. Awe-inspiring things that can't be explained. That you never thought you would see. After more than 4,000 years, it's your moment to encounter the Ark. The voyage begins again, July 7th.
here's how VidAngel lets you watch movies for $1. You buy a movie for $20, don't worry, it ends up being $1. Since you own the movie, you can legally set your filters. Now, watch your movie. Then, with the click of a button, sell it back to us for $19 of credit. That means each movie is only $1. It's that simple. Buy for $20, set filters, watch it, sell it back for $19. Enjoy your $1 movie. Sign up at witnesstalkradio.org slash vidangel. You're listening to Witness Radio. Welcome back to Witness Radio. Again, we are talking with Dr. Danny Faulkner, the author of The Created Cosmos, a, a new book on biblical astronomy. And I also have my friend Leah here who's talking to him about the book. Leah, what would you say to someone who's considering buying this book? It teaches what the Bible says about astronomy, and I think that's important for any astronomer to know who wants to know what the Bible teaches and especially how it relates to creation. And it answers many common questions that people have about astronomy. So, like, common objections even that you hear atheists cut and paste and use out on the street it can answer some of those questions like the distant starlight and all that stuff. Yeah, or even Christians who believe in evolution or the Big Bang. Okay. Well, why don't we ask some of those common objection questions to Dr. Faulkner? Sure. How do you explain light from distant galaxies reaching the Earth in only a few days? That is a a big problem. We call it the light travel time problem. I've wrestled that for that with that uh, question for four decades. I finally came to a resolution several years ago and finally published it up. Uh, I think about three or three and a half years ago now. There are many other solutions out there. I know at least five others. I'm not happy with each one of those. I like some aspects, but dislike some other aspects. But you know, I I wanted to get back to, to scripture and think about this through biblically. Let me make a couple of observations. First of all, the situation is far worse than most people realize. Most formulations of the uh, light travel time problem is focused on today, thousands of year after, years after creation. We see things that are millions or billions of light years away, and, and how can we see these if the world is only thousands of years old? But um, if we go back to the beginning of creation, we realize that Adam had a huge light travel time problem. The nearest star outside of the, the uh, solar system is over four light years away. So uh, Adam's made on day six. The stars are made four days earlier. When the sun fell at the end of day six, beginning of day seven, it became dark. What did Adam see when he looked up? Well, I believe he saw stars because if he didn't, the stars could not fulfill their purposes. They had to be visible for those purposes to be to be realized. So consequently, uh, if we can explain Adam's light travel time problem, how he could see the nearest stars, I think it would also explain to us how we can see the most distant objects in the universe today. And I'm also struck by the fact that there's a lot of process going on in creation. Many times people think that uh, creation was just ex nihilo, instantaneous, poof, there's a tree where there wasn't one, poof, there's a whale where there wasn't one. That's not what the passage says. There's a lot of process going on. God made man from the dust of the ground. We know from Genesis uh, uh, chapter 2. Also in chapter 2, it tells us that, uh, I think verse 19, it tells us that the animals, the uh, at least the land animals, the birds came out of the ground in a similar way. Uh, we also uh, see that 
the uh, dry land had appeared on, on day three, beginning of day three. And I think that took a process very fast, very rapid, very directed. And also the plants on day three, if you're really careful to look at the language used there, the two verbs used in uh, verses 11 and 12, it speaks of the plants growing very rapidly up out of the ground. Um, I think the reason why they had to do that was they had to be matured very quickly because two or three days later, you got man and animals coming along that needed the, the fruit of those plants. Uh, and everybody was vegetarian at the very beginning, according to verses 29 and, and 30 of chapter 1. And so uh, without those matured plants, you would everyone would have starved to death at the beginning of this. I think the same thing happened on day 4. God rapidly made the heavenly bodies, but in order for them to fulfill their functions, just like the plants to fulfill their functions to provide food, they had to be matured. Now, I'm not saying they, they were created mature. They were matured very rapidly. And just as God brought those plants out of the ground very rapidly, I think God rapidly brought the light here on, on day four. And at this point, some people uh, say, well, wait a minute. You're just just saying God did it. It was a miracle. And I said, yeah, the whole creation week is a miracle. You have nothing. You have something. You have no matter, no energy. You have matter and energy. You have light where you didn't have any. All of these are violations of, of physics as we know it. So what's wrong with with bringing the light here very rapidly? Some people ask me, well, what's the physical mechanism? Well, I ask you, what's the physical mechanism of the virgin birth of the resurrection? There isn't any. Uh, sometimes we creation scientists, we, we think we have to put God in a box and confine him to operate even the creation week within the confines of physics. Well, he created physics. He made physics. And so I have uh, no no fear of invoking a, a, a miracle here. I think it's... Uh, it's okay to do that if we're if we really believe in creation and and really understand what what's going on with creation. What's the difference between astronomy and astrology, and is it okay? Is it biblical for Christians to practice astrology? Well, much of history, astronomy and astrology were intertwined. They went their separate ways about four centuries ago in the rise of modern science. But you know, um, uh, astronomy I would define as a study, uh, a scientific study of of of, uh, astronom- of heavenly bodies. Uh, on the other hand, astrology is an ancient pagan religion which uh, posits that the positions of the sun, the moon, and the planets with respect to the stars affect our destinies and our lives. There are a couple of reasons why this came about, I think. The uh, ancients uh, used uh, calendars, uh, you know, to know when to plant and so forth. They knew that when certain stars were visible, certain astronomical phenomenon happened, it was time to plant. It was time to do this. It was pretty easy then to shift over to that, uh, thinking that somehow instead of just being time markers, these things were actually causing these things, the seasons, changes to take place, for instance, or rainfall to happen. Also, you have a backdrop of immovable stars. They, they rotate as a unit throughout the day and, and night, and they change from season to season, but they come back next year, next, tomorrow night, basically the same location, and the relationships between them change so slowly over human history, they've not changed at all. Orion looks the same as it did to, to Job when he wrote about Orion. There are seven objects that move around in the sky, very obviously, the sun and the moon. Uh, they move around throughout the sky once a year for the sun, once a, a month for the moon. But then there are five naked eye planets. They look like bright stars, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And those names are Roman deities. And typically people in ancient time named uh, those seven objects after gods 
And so if you have manifestations of gods up in the heavens, well, if they affect our lives, then therefore they must have something to do with uh, with our lives. Keep in mind that this is an ancient pagan religion, and as such, it's a false religion, and it's in competition with the true religion, that is, the, the God of the Bible. And so I think it's displeasing uh, for us to, to practice uh, or even dabble in astrology. There are a few biblical passages that that uh, explicitly uh, tell us astrology is wrong, but you know we should be able to figure that out on our own. Because if you if you follow astrology, you're you're you've already violated at least one of the ten commandments, and you're letting you're letting uh, another belief system, another religion, take the place and eclipse the true and living God. Okay, so just to clarify, astrology is the bad one. Astronomy is the good one. Yeah, and you know it confuses people because you think of sciences as being like biology, uh, geology, anthropology, archaeology, all these logos things going, and all of a sudden you come to astronomy and you want to say astrology. I've been called an astrologer I don't know how many times by well-educated people many times. So it's not a matter of, of being you know not 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 knowing any better. It's just it's just kind of confusing to most people. So it doesn't offend me at all. I just chuckle whenever I get called that. And what do you think about extraterrestrial life? Do you think that's biblical? I don't. I don't think so. You know, we have a planetarium show here at the uh, Creation Museum about that, and we also have. I've written a pocket guide we published last year on uh, on ETs. So you could you could hear one of my talks on that, read the chapter in the book on that, or those other other things that I've written. But I'll give you the short version here. I think a lot of the belief of ETs is undergirded by belief in evolution. The argument is, is if life evolved on this planet, it must have naturalistically originated and evolved many, many other times. Otherwise, the Earth would be unique, and that would make the Earth special, which kind of drags you back to creation, doesn't it? But to the Christian, that shouldn't be a shouldn't be an option. You know, we we know that life was created on this Earth, and it's in it's inconsistent to think that life evolved somewhere else. So, if there is extraterrestrial life out there, then God uh, would have to create that. I would think it would be inconsistent to say otherwise. So that becomes a theological question, doesn't it? And uh, one question that comes to mind, we say ETs, we're not talking about, you know, bacteria or dogs living on a planet. We're talking about creatures like us that have intelligence, can build things, social creatures. If I may say created in the image of God, we're not talking about angels either. We're talking, or demons, we're talking physical beings like us, not spiritual beings. That's what people mean when they, what mean when they say ETs. Well, if God made them in every respect like us, then are these beings uh, fallen creatures? Are they sinful? Do they need redemption to restore uh, their, their right order with, with their creator? And if so, why? Well, it's because of Adam's sin. You've got to realize that, well, to the aliens, we're the aliens. Adam is an alien. And so if you're going to proclaim the gospel in one of these alien worlds, wouldn't your message begin something like this? A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> well, you see, you see this, the, the absurdity of that. That's not going to fly. Then you could say, well, maybe, maybe there was a, uh, there was an atom on each one of these planets that, that then sinned and, and introduced sin into their, their worlds. Well, that would then require that Jesus, if he's going to provide a way of redemption for them, would have to go to each of those worlds. When he finished his work on this planet, he then went to another planet where he was born, lived a perfect life, uh, sacrificially died, rose from the dead, to then go to another planet and do it again and again and again. Well, we know from Scripture, numerous passages in the New Testament, that Jesus didn't go to another planet when he left this world. He went to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Uh, the third possibility could be that God created beings like us, but that for some reason they never fell into sin. But, you know, uh, Romans 8 describes the taint of man's sin affecting all of creation. I think that's the reason why 
they, this world, the entire creation, heaven and earth, must uh, be uh, destroyed and reconstructed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, as Second Peter chapter 3 talks explicitly about destroying this world by fire and so it can be remade. I think the very creation, all of it requires redemption at some point. So you would have perfect beings never falling into sin, living in a sin-tainted world, and I have a real problem with that. So if I eliminate all three possibilities... I conclude that, uh, no, I think we're we're probably it. We are the crown of creation, as, as Psalm 8 talks about as well. And that is a very big difference between what the world wants to say. And I, I'm calling Christians to think about this biblically. Don't think about it the way the world wants you to think about it. And you know what? We have some lines of evidence out there. Uh, looking for intelligent life in the universe. We have SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, picking up radio signals from other other uh, civilizations. You know, we've been doing this for decades. We have terabytes of data. How many intelligent signals have we found? None. Zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we also have uh, the search for extra, extrasolar planets, planets orbiting other stars. They're looking for Earth-like planets, you know, where life could possibly exist. You know, we've now found nearly 4,000 extrasolar planets. How many are Earth-like? None. Zero. <laughs> Once again. So um, it turns out the science, the data are backing up what I expect from Scripture, that the that we are alone in the universe. And that's a big stark contrast to what uh, the world has to say. So now, what do you say to the people? I mean, there's been hundreds of thousands of claims that people have seen aliens or been abducted, or whatever. Okay, the vast majority of these are just lights in the sky, things they see in the sky. You know, the the, the actual, oh, well, I saw this this green man or something, or I was abducted by them. Those are very rare. They're, you know, like one, one hundredth of one hundredth of one percent. Most were just lights and objects in the sky. The vast majority of UFO sightings uh, can be explained in terms of of natural phenomenon, bright stars, bright planets, satellites, planes, peculiar clouds, sun dogs, it goes on and on and on the list. And and, and many others can be explained by hoaxes. That's happened quite a bit. Crop circles is a great one that, you know, had people going for a long time. Still people believe in them, even though it's been debunked many times. I do believe that 98, 99% of all UFO sightings can be explained in terms of these phenomenon. Does that mean then the 1% or 2% remain are automatically flying saucers and little green men? Well, no. It just means we haven't explained them yet. Many of the times we don't have enough information. I've had spoken on this and people come up to me and tell me something happened 20 years ago and they don't know exactly when it was or where it was, but they have something remarkable. I can't help them because I don't have enough information to try to tell you what it is. By the way, I have seen myself a number of UFOs. All that means is unidentified flying objects, something in the sky didn't know what it was. But I've investigated, and every time I've been able to convert my UFOs to IFOs, identified flying objects. And I'm concerned that many people quit way too quickly, and uh, they don't have enough imagination and much much curiosity. They see something in the sky, don't know what it is, automatically it's a flying saucer, they're done. Well, when you say it's a flying saucer, it's not a UFO anymore, it's an IFO. You've identified it as a flying saucer. Now, as far as abductions go, uh, I've read into that quite a bit, and you know what? Nobody remembers being abducted. They tell like they, you know, they, they, they get abducted, they go running away and they go back home and they start telling everybody what happens is they're always abducted in the middle of the night and it's never remembered. It's brought up through uh, hypnotic regression. You, you put people in a deep hypnosis and you start tweaking out these memories supposedly of what happened mm. to them. But uh, the problem with that is, is that there uh, people have debunked a good deal of that. A lot of these, these memories are actually implanted by the person doing the hypnotic 
automatic regression for you. So I'm not convinced with all these uh, these stories of abductions, and I'm concerned that many uh, writers, particularly Christian writers writing about it, seem to take these things as a face value. You say you're abducted, okay, you're abducted, but when you scratch beneath the surface, you really see some problems in many of them. Again, if you want to learn more about that, you can look at the um, pocket guide I've also written. I, it goes in more detail than my book does. By the way, I'm also in my spare time working on an expanded version of that pocket guide, but I don't know when that's going to come out. It's, it's, I've got a lot of writing duty yet on that. Keep checking witnesstalkradio.org slash AIG to find current and upcoming projects. They're, they're all available there for sale. Recently, I've heard people say like, well, what if the earth is flat? Or doesn't the Bible teach the earth is flat? Didn't people always believe that until just recently? I, I thought Columbus solved this back in 1492. <laughs> No, that's uh, that's actually <laughs> part of our, our cultural mythology. You know, the belief we all grew up with was everybody thought the world was flat until 500 years ago when Columbus somehow proved it was it was not. Well, you know, Columbus went from Spain to the Caribbean, back to, back to Spain, did it three more times. How does that prove the world is spherical? Truth be known, uh, the uh, people knew the earth was spherical 2,500 years ago. The first mention we have in the literature is Pythagoras in 6th century BC knew the earth was spherical. He did that by noting the shape of the moon's, uh, the earth's shadow during a lunar eclipse. It's always round, and only a sphere can do that. No other shape can do that. And there are many other, uh, other arguments people used. You know, a guy in 200 BC named Eratosthenes measured the size of the earth pretty accurately, knew the circumference and the radius of the earth. He can only do that if he knew the earth was spherical. This whole mythology uh, we have about Columbus and recent discovery that the earth is round uh, really only goes back uh, to the late 19th century. A couple of uh, critics, uh, John uh, Henry Draper and Andrew Dixon White, they both wrote uh, books on what they call the conflict thesis of how that uh, Christianity had held back progress. And one of their main exhibits was the fact that the church taught that the earth was flat. It never taught that. This is just a total rewrite of history. And this falls right into this modern flat earth movement. And I dealt with that in the book in a chapter. Now, as it turns out, I, I, uh, if I would have written the book today, I would have expanded that chapter tremendously because I've learned since I, since I, you know, finished the draft of the book that there's this tremendous movement out there now on YouTube and other social media that's uh, sucking a lot of Christians into this with a lot of false information. And I, I just can't keep up with it. I've been emailing people asking questions about it and people with a lot of attitudes, by the way, about it. And it's rubbish. The Bible does not teach the earth is flat. It doesn't do that. Skeptics have claimed that for years and uh, to discredit the Bible. And then I find now Christians, supposed Christians, taking up those very poor arguments, those lame arguments, and trying to argue what the skeptics were trying to argue. And they think this is God-honoring. It doesn't. The scripture never taught that, and the science doesn't uh, doesn't teach that, and history doesn't teach that. Uh, other than that, I guess there's nothing wrong with the flat Earth movement today. But they've got everything wrong. It takes me no time at all to debunk these ideas. But again, I, I talk about that in the book, not as much detail as I'd hope now, because uh, things have happening in the last uh, year. Uh, this flat earth movement and nonsense has really blown up. And it's, it's a real concern to me because I see people being sucked up into it quite a bit. It sounds like Dr. Faulkner has another book that he's going to be writing in the near future. Well, you know what? I don't, I don't know. There are a lot of books I could write that I don't because, uh, because it's the flip side of the sensational story. You know, the earth is flat. Certainly it sounds sensational. It's going to get people in. But writing a book, the earth is not flat. Well, that, Who's going to buy that book? <laughs> people are already believing that the earth is, is spherical, have no interest in it. And people already believe it's flat, aren't going to be convinced anyway. 
So the, it's a great idea, but I don't think I'd, I have a hard time interesting a publisher in that. So I'm doing things on our AIG website and uh, one-on-one. I've, I've published two articles now on, on Flat Earth. So how can we transition from talking about astronomy to talking about the gospel? How can we share the gospel with astronomers? Oh, that's tough. That's tough. I mean, it, it, you can generalize that to anybody. Uh, I think you have to prayerfully consider your opportunities and, and, and pray for God to give you the wisdom uh, to recognize opportunities to, to introduce the gospel or discuss the gospel and also give you the words to uh, boldness to, to act upon that. There's no you know one-size-fits-all or a 10-step program you can go through. With some people, maybe you need to talk a little bit about the science. Uh, some people, you need to talk about the assumptions. I think that's really why. Why do you believe this? And, uh, you know, I don't find too many atheists out there. Most people I've met in astronomy, too, are theists, but they've never really put the two together. You know, if there's a God, there's a creator, well, how does this fit in? Does it matter what I think about the origins of, of things? And I think that's a good segue. If a person is is not an atheist, they believe in some sort of God, well, you can probe there, okay, how does God fit into your scheme of things? And many astronomers have never given that any thought, believe it or not. They think the question of origins is somehow just a scientific issue. I'm convinced it's not. It's a metaphysical question, and I think I can give some scientific arguments as to why that's the case. But anyway, it's a, it's a tough tough one. You have to do it on a case-by-case basis. When I go out in the middle of the night and I look up in the sky and I see the moon and the stars, I am in awe at the glory of, of God and, and his creation. And I, I always think to myself, how in the world can someone not believe in a creator, believe in the creator when they look out at a night sky like that. Oh, I agree. And the answer, I think, is just the hardness of their hearts or sometimes just their starting positions to come come to. You know, what you're, what you're saying here is echoing Psalm 8, uh, look at the heavens, the, 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 the moon and the stars which you've ordained. I asked the question, uh, who is man that you have, uh, and, and the son of man that you give him any thought? You know, based, I'm paraphrasing that, of course, but uh, asking the question, big question of the existence of our existence, our purpose, our meaning in, in, the, in the cosmos. He did that because I think he was a student of the skies. You know, he was uh, a shepherd before he was a king and uh, probably was out at night sometimes watching the herds at probably 3,000 feet elevation in a Mediterranean climate. I've been in that kind of environment. It is stunning if you let your eyes get dark adapted. They didn't have TV and uh, other things to to mess up their, their dark adaptation. So I think he really looked at the sky the way God intended us to. And I contrast that with Carl Sagan. He was a famous uh, planetary scientist, died about almost 20 years ago now. But he was uh, a big force behind some of the unmanned space probes of the solar system back in the 70s particularly. And uh, he wrote a whole book called Pale Blue Dot based on a photo uh, that the Voyager spacecraft took looking back billions of miles away, looking back at the Earth. And this Earth is like a little tiny dot, pale blue. That's, that's because the, the atmosphere of the Earth, it's a beautiful color, I understand, from space. And it covers two pixels on this camera. It's incredible how tiny it is. It looks very fragile. And uh, everyone is mesmerized by this, this, uh, this photograph. They call it the pale blue dot photo because uh, everything humanity's ever accomplished for good or bad is encapsulated in two pixels. Makes you pretty small. Think you're pretty small at that point. He wrote a whole book series of essays, each chapter on uh, our purpose and, and, and meaning and place in the cosmos. You see, he was an agnostic. He didn't believe there was a creator. And uh, he was casting about trying to find some sort of purpose or meaning. But, you know, if you really don't believe there's a creator and you believe in evolution, there is no purpose or meaning. We, I mean, existence is meaningless. It just exists. And he struggled in that book to uh, to come up with a with a purpose and a meaning. 
But, you know, Psalm 8, just in a few verses, a few sentences, he, David goes back to Genesis to give us the, the purpose and meaning. You know, it says that God has, uh, has created man, made man just a little lower than the heavenly beings and uh, crowned him with glory and honor. We are the crown of creation. And then also goes on about the stewardship we have. We're in charge. Uh, it doesn't mean we abuse the uh, the world around us, but we are in charge of the world. We're supposed to be stewards of this world and put it, put us everything under our dominion. And so man is in a special place because God has put us in a special place. And he's created us in his image and in his likeness, according to Genesis 1. So um, man is special. Man has a purpose. And so without knowledge of the creator, the man, the, the, the God who made the world, and a relationship with him, his son, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was co-creator. There is no purpose or meaning to life. Only then will you get it. So that question you're asking, looking up in the sky, it's been asked many times. And uh, it, it really gets to the nut of, ma- of the matter. And I think that's what Psalm 19 is all about, telling us there must be a creator. But people will say no to that because of the hardness of their hearts. Well, Dr. Faulkner, I want to thank you so much for being on Witness Radio today. Where can people go to find out your upcoming speaking schedule, find out more information about you, how to contact you, all that stuff? Well, you can uh, get through uh, Answers in Genesis. Answersingenesis.org is our website. We also, uh, you can call. I forget the number, but it's uh, probably it's on the website anyway. And there are many ways you can you can contact by emailing in. I've had people contact me that way or by calling, trying to get through. And and a lot of my writings, not all my writings are there, but many of my writings are there referenced at the website. So answersingenesis.org is the easiest way to figure out how to get a hold of you or to see your schedule and whatnot. So make sure, ladies and gentlemen, that you go to answersingenesis.org to get equipped on how to share the gospel and to know more about stars and planets and all that other stuff that goes into astronomy, not astrology. (laughs) And Leah, I want to thank you for helping me out with this interview because a lot of it I don't understand. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And before we go, if you think you can benefit from having a copy of Dr. Faulkner's book, The Created Cosmos, then visit the contest page at witnesstalkradio.org for your chance to win a signed copy. Deadline for entries is December 31st, 2016, and the contest is open to listeners within the continental United States. Thanks for listening to another episode of Witness Radio. Visit witnesstalkradio.org to read the show notes and let us know if you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to join us on social media and share this episode with your friends. Now that the show is over, it's time for you to go. That is, to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. May God bless you. This show has been a production of the Muniac family. Please pray for us as we continue to minister in the tri-state area and around the globe with Christ-centered programs.